0: We wanted to build very opinionated software, and to build opinionated software, you should be able to you know, iterate quickly, make changes quickly, and sometimes be a bit radical, which can be very difficult when you're selling to enterprises. But that's going to be impossible if you have many scenarios that you have to support. A great product leader cares about the product, first and foremost. And secondly, cares very much about people. That kind of attitude, it skills. Quite well, because it's about getting stuff done and working well with other people.
1: You are listening to the Enterprise Ready Podcast, a show aiming to change the enterprise software narrative from how to sell to enterprises to how to build for enterprises. We'll interview industry experts and enterprise software founders as we break through the jargon, establish a common vernacular, and share the lessons learned from building the world's best enterprise software. Hi, I'm Grant Miller, creator of Enterprise Ready and founder and CEO of Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors like HashiCorp, CircleCI, Sneak, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem applications. Check us out at Replicated.com. The Enterprise Ready podcast is brought to you by HeavyBit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit HeavyBit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io.
2: In this episode of the Enterprise Ready Podcast, we join Grant as he sits down with Yoob Vandervoort, the CEO and co-founder of Remote. Joab previously worked as a neuroscientist before leaving academia to become the VP of product at GitLab, the world's largest all-remote company where he hired talent in over 65 different countries. Beginning his technical career building software for the Dutch government, Yo became an early adopter of the open-source version of GitLab, which led to his leaving to work for the up-and-coming DevOps platform in early 2014. The conversation turns to the early days of GitLab following their partnership with Y Combinator and how the startup went about building their first enterprise version of the software. The pair discussed what customer success means to the enterprise and the hurdles of building opinionated software for large enterprise companies. They then move on to discuss what being a great product leader entails, as Yob shares his experience with GitLab as they scaled the company while splitting their product into separate community and enterprise versions. Yob then dives into some of his experience of leaving to start remote while taking some of the lessons learned from GitLab on fostering a successful and beneficial remote working environment. Finally, the two ponder the benefits and struggles of being an entirely remote company in the midst of a global pandemic and how increasingly distributed teams will result in a wave of new categories and untapped markets. This was a wonderful episode to record filled with rich stories and timely advice for any software company operating remotely. We thank Yob for his time and we hope you enjoy.
1: All right, Joab, yeah, thank you so much for joining.
2: Thanks for having
0: me, Grant.
1: So I'd love to just dive right in. Tell us how you got into enterprise software.
0: Uh, yeah, sure. I uh, It's a bit of a windy road for me. I, uh, I have a background in neuroscience, so I, I worked as a scientist for a number of years. Cool. And I was about to start my PhD when I discovered Hacker News in the world of startups. And I decided that being generally quite impatient, I should... Try to get into that. It it, it seemed much more appealing to run my own company than to just work as a scientist, where you're always reporting to some management. And so I did a bunch of things. I tried to start my own startup, ran out of money, and eventually ended up as a software engineer at a Dutch company building software for the Dutch government, which was was quite extreme because I went from not doing any software engineering to doing, you know, the, the kind of stuff that has a gazillion tests and separate companies that were validating our code before it went into production and. Shipping things into production required literally the CEO of that company to get a key to open a box, in which box there was a USB key that was had to be inserted into a particular computer at the same time with another USB key. And that was the only way to deploy particular changes that we were making. Whoa. <laughs> it, was, it was quite intense. And at that job, so I worked on on software that like, Handled particular government things, I worked on software that was used to create licenses and certificates, like SSL certificates. And uh, at a job we used GitLab as source control, uh, which was only open source at the time. But one of my coworkers happened to be starting a company based on that, uh, and it was it. And he left that company to say, "I'm just going to focus on GitLab." And he told me, "Yo, if you ever consider, you know, doing something else, you should join me." So a month later, I left that job and I, I joined GitLab, which at the time was, you know, a company without any customers. So yeah, that's that's really where my st- <laughs> my start was. And of course, GitLab being a, a enterprise software
1: company. Wow. Okay. So you met Sid working at this like you were actually working for the government.
0: Uh, yeah, it was a it was a company that they, their main contracts were all with the government. They had a few other products, but they yeah their main contracts were with the Dutch government yeah
1: okay. And you were GitLab users, yeah, just using the open source stuff yep. and then Sid's like had Sid brought it in or how did, how did they end up using GitLab at that point?
0: I don't think he had. I, I think they were using GitLab, and, and Sid was consulting to them, like as an engineer, like not as like a GitLab anything. He was literally just writing code in Ruby on Rails, just like I was. Uh, and I think he was already there by the time I joined. And then shortly after I joined, a few months later, he left, and I left. I was there for less than a year. That was a cool job, though.
1: Cool, and then I mean, so super early days of GitLab. I mean, this is you know obviously GitLab has grown a lot since then. So (laughs) talk about talk about the start. Talk about like you know what were the insights and and kind of what were the challenges in in those very early days.
0: It was very interesting because GitLab itself is this open source project existed for several years already. This was early 2014, I think, and GitLab existed since 2011. And so we already knew we had a rough idea based on like downloads with packages and such that there were about a hundred thousand, if not more, instances of GitLab live, you know. And we assumed those were mostly organizations. We also knew that there was a whole bunch of them that we would never see because they were, you know, we just saw the download, but we there was no active ping that we got from them. So we had a good idea that there was a large install base and there was no enterprise product at the time. And you know, at first we thought, you know, let's just make money on support Mm. and we started to get inquiries once we had like a business established like okay we you know we are a large enterprise we use GitLab with a whole bunch of people and there's no way to support it and it was surprisingly hard to make like good money on it but like part of the fault was that we had no experience in building a business like this and we had no idea how to charge it so one of the things that happened was that you know a fortune hundreds company it was like a fortune 10 company reached out and said we have this massive gitlab installation and we run the open source version and we need some extra features that are not in there right now and that's essentially what got us to start like an enterprise edition for gitlab where we built you know it was uh, some SAML features at the time mm. to be able to you know to help them and to be able to charge for that and i think we charged a ridiculously low amount, like a thousand dollars a year for, you know, this massive <laughs> in enterprise installation. And you know, I think since then that bill went up, you know, a thousandfold if not more. But that was it. Was certainly interesting. And looking back, it was of course a ridiculous start, but it was also a good start because, you know, we basically had users, we
1: had customers before we established a company because it was open source. That's awesome. And you were, I guess, you were in the same city as it at that point, or where were you?
0: Uh, yeah, so the, you know, the company we were working at before was in Utrecht, uh, which is in the Netherlands. Uh, I was living quite far from there, actually, like an hour and a half by train, two hours on a bad day. Oh, wow. Uh, and so GitLab was founded by Sid and Dmitri, and Dmitry was in Ukraine. And other people that worked there were Marin, who was in Serbia, and Jakob, who lived elsewhere in the in Amsterdam. Uh, yeah, so we, we didn't have an office, and we just worked for, remotely from from day one, essentially.
1: Okay, so you were you were remote from day one, and what was your role when you first started?
0: Yeah, I started as a service engineer, which basically meant I do support, I write features, fix bugs, and everything else. I was very much interested in other things than that. Like I built a website at first. Yeah, we our website was really terrible, and so I, I renewed that, I redesigned it, and and built it myself, and then. Over time, I got more into like what should we build, and I just named myself a product manager, and everybody was fine with that. So I've been leading product, you know, since very early on at GitLab right until I left.
1: That's funny. So sort of a a self proclaimed product title, and then just just sort of buy. it's almost like titles don't matter as much. It's like what you do, right? Yeah, and it,
0: you know, I really like that. I think you know the first five or six people at GitLab. Everybody was an engineer. So we were just all enjoying GitLab as a product itself. We were all contributing directly to it. Everybody did everything. Everybody cared about everything. You know, GitLab has been releasing new updates every single month on the 22nd of the month, a new version. And we did that back then as well. And it was really a rally around that. Um, so one of the things I took on very early on was just writing that release post and making it a big deal every single month. Like, mm. this is a new version of GitLab and this is why it's awesome. But yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. Like, at those early stages, I think of any company, but, uh, but at GitLab for sure, uh, they were very exciting.
1: Okay. And so GitLab was part of Y Combinator at some point, right?
0: Yeah, so you know the company was founded like at the end of 2013. I joined early 2014, and then in early 2015 we went to Y Combinator. So uh, we went with the whole company, all its employees, in a single house in Mountain View at a time that was nine people or eight people. Uh, yeah, yeah, we went through through Y Combinator.
1: Oh wow! So everybody moved to the Valley for three months.
0: Yeah, yeah. I I left a little bit early because I was getting married at the end of the of the time there. But uh, yeah, we all moved there. We had one car, so we bought this one big SUV, <laughs> old SUV, and we put the GitLab logo on to, on it. Um, That's amazing. And it it was awesome. It, it was everything what you would expect from like an early startup. We it was like a normal house in Mountain View, which I don't know it's like the most boring place on the planet, which helps because we just put a giant table in the middle of the room, sat on there every single day with our laptops and just. Just worked. Just worked our asses off, uh, and it's uh, it was pretty good. Uh, I think it was a pretty good way to to try to go faster.
1: I love that. Okay, so you're in YC. When did you get that first kind of big customer request? So, so I guess even before that, you're, you were selling support, quote unquote. Yeah. And like, what what does that even mean at that stage? Like What are you actually selling people?
0: Yeah, we'll we'll start to get into the real deep enterprise stuff right now because GitLab primarily served as on-premise software. So, you know, our customers, we we had a cloud product, but especially early on, it was not very good uh, because we wanted to use the same code base for both the cloud product as well as for the enterprise product, for the on-premise product. And so what it means is that most of our customers they were using GitLab by downloading the code, uh, early on, it was like literally just a source code and then long instructions, and then installing it on their own servers, and then managing that themselves. And the reality is, is that most enterprises what they have is they have like, you know, nowadays almost everybody uses Kubernetes. But at the time, everybody had their own systems to deploy things. Everybody had their own specific databases, and and, and GitLab itself, it was not super simple because uh, git happens on the file system so they have a lot of io on the file system Mm. and then uh, you have a database you know which is heavily used and then you know you might have some sort of caching or something like redis and so what we do as support is we would do various things Sometimes we would just help setting this up. like how do you set up like a scalable GitLab instance? And this was continuously would involve because early on, you know, what we thought was scalable would quickly break and then we would have to replace components. And then for many enterprises, they had built their own setup. and like, so for example, they might have a chosen database. They say, "Well, you know, GitLab uses Postgres, but we have this mega MySQL cluster, and every application we use must use that. And if it doesn't use that, then you know, we're just not going to work with you. And so you know, our job was either like, help them maintain that or, or help them get set up in that sense. And because it was an open source project, and because like, early on there was not really a company driving it, there was a large part of customers that essentially downloaded GitLab one day, installed it on their servers, maybe started modifying it, and then realized that they had a product that they could not update because we would bring out regular updates and you know there, there might have been some sort of interest from individuals around the organization like oh this new version of gitlab looks really cool but they essentially forked gitlab and made this whole custom configuration and we would then you know help them migrate it to like the master branch of gitlab and then still make it work for their setup um, so yeah there were all sorts of tasks and it was it was interesting but also incredibly challenging
1: oh it's interesting and so it really was about sort of like Technical supportability of the product, and like, how do you operate this thing? Update it, and then potentially extend it and bring it back. You know, like I'm assuming when you wanted to migrate or get back to the upstream version of of GitLab, yeah, they also had to like figure out how to keep some of those changes or something, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, this was a mega challenge, and like generally, it wasn't really possible. Like we, yeah, you know, we early on took a stance that. We were not going to support those kind of customizations. Yes, you can customize GitLab. You have access to the source code, even in the enterprise version, and like you, you know we had a good API, so you can build things on top of that. But we didn't want to, you know, have many different forks be alive because that was going to be impossible to maintain, and it's going to be very hard to, you know, continue to iterate on a product. And early on, we also had the opinion that we wanted to build very opinionated software and to build opinionated software you should be able to you know iterate quickly make changes quickly and you know sometimes be a bit radical which can be very difficult when you're selling to enterprises which you know tend to shy away from large changes but that's going to be impossible if you have multiple forks you know or you have you know many scenarios that you have to support and given all of that i think we still support it a lot uh, as i said we supported multiple databases for a very long time and that and it definitely was a really, really uh, large challenge. And then I think still today, GitLab supports quite a few different ways of deploying it. And that was also a really big challenge. So <laughs> yeah, there was a lot to handle there.
1: Yeah. And were you doing any sort of like, almost like customer success where you would help them, you know, adopt you know, eventually, obviously, GitLab became very DevOps focused. But like, did you were you doing that in the beginning and helping them like understand how to set up these workflows and like, you know, hey, here are the best practices of doing Git and doing it, you know, the sort of GitLab way.
0: You know, we built the application in a way that was quite opinionated and that like forced you sort of forced you to work in a particular way. What we thought was preferable, and. For sure, for a very long time, we thought, you know, we're going to make it very hard to do particular things that we think is not a good idea. So, of mm-hmm. course, we published content. We wouldn't really, at least early on, we wouldn't do the customer success thing. I think later on, you know, that became much stronger. But it was very hard to maintain a super-opinionated stance when you have very large enterprises asking you for, you know, to essentially build the opposite thing. And so <laughs> what what we ended up doing is basically, you know, creating a very opinionated default state. And then only if you really went out of your way to customize things or like to switch different things off, then you could get into a state which we thought was like suboptimal or sometimes just, you know, bad. Sure. But like it wasn't completely impossible. I think the the whole DevOps thing became much stronger because later on, once we integrated CI, which was definitely not in the beginning. That was later in the in the evolution of GitLab. And by the time we did that, and it really became one application with like source code management and, and CI, then that became a much stronger thing. And, and that part of the application, I think, the opinion we had there, you know, as in building opinionated software, being you know, this should be easy to do. You shouldn't spend a lot of time integrating. I think that was very successful, and I successful to the point that no one really argued at that point that, that really helped
1: yeah and so let's kind of return back to this early customer the sort of the 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 start of gitlab enterprise you have all these users and somebody comes in and says we need this very specific feature some integration with with a you said saml you know was there a kind of internal discussion like well should we just open source this like, how, how did that come about? Yeah,
0: that's, that's a good question. Actually, that, I think that until right up when I left, it was like an ongoing discussion. And not in the sense that it was unresolved, it was more in that like it's an evolving discussion. So throughout the life cycle of GitLab, the life of GitLab, we had different times where the way we thought about what is community edition, so open source, and what is enterprise edition, what goes in each version, we had different philosophies around that. And we changed a few times. Uh, actually, <laughs> I don't remember very well how we started. I think early on, what we said is essentially: if it's a feature that you typically need when you're a hundred or more people using an instance of GitLab, then it's more likely to be enterprise. Sometimes it's a bit of a gut feeling. It's like: is this an enterprisey feature? Then it should go into the enterprise edition. What helped our position a lot was that even though our enterprise edition wasn't open source, the source code was available publicly. So mm. you can still read the source code, it just doesn't have an open source license, which is a subtle but very important difference. Uh, on one end, it allowed our customers to also contribute changes to the enterprise edition. So you know, if you wanted to change our SEML implementation because you wanted to add something in particular, you could do that as long as you understand that this is not an open source license. So that helped us a lot, and then you know, whenever something felt enterprisey, and we brought it to the enterprise edition, then you know our enterprise customers would be happy, and the open source community would not respond with like, "Wow, why, why do you put this there?" No, they would understand it. But sometimes we got it wrong, and because we operated very publicly, and you know, our issue tracker was fully public. If we made the wrong decision, they would call us out. The open source community would call us out, and then we would we would revert it. I think. If you have two versions like that, or, or multiple versions, it's much easier to start with like we're going to bring it to the more closed version, the, the paid for version, and then you know if you've got to get pushed back, I can bring it to the open source version. You don't want to do that too much, of course, because you know you're just going to look like a bad steward of the open source project. But I think that is essentially how how we started off um, separating uh, the two. But it it was for sure a challenge, and then. You know, later we introduced more tiers, and then you have to think: like, what tier do I put things, or does it go to the open source? And I think eventually we ended up with like, what is the buyer profile for, you know, getting a particular version of GitLab? Whereas, you know, the most expensive ultimate—that's you know, a CFO that buys it or a CTO that buys it—and like these are the things that they tend to care about, and so therefore these features need to be in that version. Uh, and then it, the lower in the corporate hierarchy you go. You know, open source features are very developer focused, whereas, you know, the, the lowest tier are maybe engineering manager focused.
1: Yeah, that makes that makes a lot more sense. It kind of reminds me, I I've I've said before that I think that like the open source sort of model that particularly I think GitLab helped to kind of popularize is sort of freemium for the enterprise. Yeah. Right. Where what you're doing is you're getting this adoption from all of these different companies who And my thesis being that like I don't think that most of those companies want to use some freemium SaaS product because of all of the data and security challenges around adopting a freemium SaaS product. But if it's an open source thing, they can just deploy into a server, you know, they will.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Does that sort of match your experience from GitLab?
0: Yeah, I think I think that is true. But I also think if you make something, you know, open source and easy to Install and to, to run and it's it's like a nice thing that is catered mostly towards like the developers. What you see is this, you know, as they call it, bottom-up uptake. Whereas individual developers in enterprises, instead of going through the whole procurement process, they just install it. And this right. we heard this so many times at GitLab, where it was like, you know. We had a group of three developers that decided to open a GitLab instance, which is you know against the tool that we chose as a, like as an enterprise. But they liked it more, and they just set it up and then started inviting their friends throughout their company, and they started using it. So it's not even that there's a decision being made about should we use this or you know this is easier to install in a survey. It's just that it would happen, like it would yeah. <laughs> literally literally just happen. Which is also some of the secrets of you know, GitLab's growth is that many of the things that we wanted to introduce later on were features that we just shipped them along in GitLab. So for example, uh, GitLab CI, once we made it one application, so GitLab CI was fully integrated in GitLab. So if you installed the update from one to the next, you would just have a CI tool now. And so what we did is we just turned it on by default. So if you upgrade it, you now had a CI suddenly there. Like It it was very easy to get started. It basically turned itself on. Uh, There was a little message that said something like, you have CI now, (laughs) just connect something to run your code and now you can run. And that that helps a lot by just making it super easy to get started and then not getting stuck in that procurement process.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. So it's like, This concept of shadow IT, except like just on the free open source side, plus, you know, being able to just like use that reach that you have to sort of bring in new functionality and expose that to folks along the way and continue to increase the usefulness. Yeah, no, that's really smart. And it, it's also sort of just like reflecting back on on GitLab, just the, the idea that it was a project for like three years plus before there was a company around it. You know, when people think about the trajectory of the company, no one like thinks about all of the years of like sort of zero growth as a open source project and then very small growth as like a, you know, early stage company. Everyone thinks about the rocket ship at the end. Yeah. But there's so much work that's done up front and groundswell that has to be built you know, it's hard for for companies to sort of start from day zero and say like, "Hey, we're going to do the GitLab thing," because you know, there's a lot of work and foundation that's laid before you know you're really building a huge go-to-market org.
0: Yeah, yeah, it, it's very interesting. It's funny to think back about like those early days where I remember we were nine in total and we felt like a big company at the time because <laughs> it felt like you know our beginnings were so humble. We we were just an open source project, and now we had a company with nine people, and it was very impressive. And then I think we did a summit in Amsterdam and we were 40 in total. And I was like, wow, this is a big company now that I'm working for. <laughs> so I should consider starting my own company because this is getting too big for me. Yeah, it's very interesting to to think about that. And it, for sure, it helped us a lot. I think one of the interesting things is that that early start where it was just an open source project that led to so much more business much later in life. I remember, you know, I think it was 2016 or so, that a very large a uh, prospect came to us that said, "You know, we've been running GitLab for many years." And this was a company, like a very large company, like an electronics company. I don't even know exactly which very large electronics company that essentially told us, "Yeah, we've been using GitLab for many years, and we didn't know about it." At GitLab, we had no idea. There was no ping coming into us. There was no. They would just download the package or install it from source, and they had their own version running. And we were using happily that for years. And only until our enterprise versions got interesting enough, they they thought, well, maybe we should contact them.
1: That's cool. Yeah. I mean, that's the all these seeds that are planted, right? That yeah. eventually you're you're able to harvest because you've added so much value into the world. I love that. And you know, one thing you kind of mentioned with with CI and adding some of these other, I'll call them like core features, because they're not necessarily like, you know, these enterprisey features like SAM but they're more like core you know functionality of the product. You know, one thing I, I think I've noticed over time is, is maybe GitLab has sort of bundled in some other open source tools and products alongside of it. Mm-hmm. How were you deciding between bundling in something else that was open source versus building something from scratch?
0: I think you know we want to be super pragmatic about it. And there was a trend that we saw, which is that there were these really great open source tools. That were kind of hard to set up. But if everybody got them for free and like you wouldn't have the need to set them up, then that would be a massive benefit to everybody. Like that was basically our attitude, And that's why we integrated them. Like they were we would just be redoing someone else's work if we wouldn't just bundle you know, that. So the decision was super easy to make in that sense. I think CI in particular, you know, it started out because Dimitri didn't want to maintain our Jenkins server. Like that's <laughs> that's why I started out. And then, you know, we figured out, you know, if we do this and this and that, then it can just be one application. And at the time I remember people thought, well, you know, it's gonna be too heavy on the server. And we just tried it and it it was fine. But yeah, for for anything else, you know, building something from scratch when there's an established great open source tool that everybody likes. It's much easier, and like there really is nothing against it because it's a win-win for everybody. The fact that we were using it means that we would end up contributing to it more; it would be used more. So we were just being very pragmatic about it.
1: Yeah, and some examples, I think, like maybe is Prometheus bundled? Yeah, is there a chat solution bundled here? Yeah,
0: yeah. We so Prometheus, which is like this monitoring solution, which is really really nice. It scales incredibly well. So it made a lot of sense to not build our custom solution there. And if you are able to. Bundle something open source, and it just comes along. It saves everybody so much time. So that was very easy. And at Mattermost, you know, being an open source Slack competitor, again, that made so much sense. The fact that Slack was already then very dominant, and there was mm-hmm. basically no great competitor to it. And then here was this company that was building this awesome, you know, the same model as GitLab, awesome tool that basically did everything that Slack did. And that, you know, if we were to bundle that. And start to integrate that. It basically gave us like a chat client that was automatically from the get-go integrated with GitLab. That was really, really cool. And mm. uh, we believed in like the idea of you know making it very easy to do things from chat. So that was an obvious thing to do. Uh, I think the MetaMost one is is probably the most controversial one because it was least integrated with GitLab. Uh, but nonetheless, it made us excited to you know, ship that along and just make it easy to adopt and, and run your own uh, chat tool rather than relying on an external party and you know yeah. suffering with that.
1: Was the CI tool, was that part of another Open Source project or was that something that you built from scratch?
0: No, that was built from scratch. So okay. Dimitri started building CI by himself, uh, GitLab CI. It was a separate project, like separate repository altogether. And then I think at one point, Camille, who is this amazing Polish engineer, and I think he still works at GitLab, he built an improved version of Runner that was much more efficient, that worked much better. And I think that eventually led to integrating GitLab CI into the, the main GitLab code base. But yeah, no, that was from scratch. It, the, the way it worked was heavily inspired by other new CI software at the time, which is like you have a YAML config, it's very easy to configure it, and you have all sorts of mm-hmm. uh, good defaults so that you don't have to code everything from scratch. You can just say, you know, I want these pipelines to run in parallel, I want these to run in sequence. That should be very easy to configure, so we gave you a lot of tools around that. And the main difference was that Jenkins at the time, you had a configuration in your Jenkins server that then would run your CI, and then if you wanted to take that configuration from the repository, there was a lot to get through. And then building GitLab CI from the get-go with thinking, well, as long as the CI configuration is in the repository, it means that all your commits will Forever run because the configuration moves along with you know the head of the branch. So everybody does this nowadays, but at the time it was very useful to people that were not using that. And that made for a really good start. Yeah. And then again, the fact that it came shipped by default, you got it for free, and you basically couldn't turn it off. Like you could just not use it. You could use you could integrate with Jenkins, with you know, in the beginning, most enterprises did, but we just never turned it off. And that made it a lot easier
1: to use. That's cool. And so Kind of back to you and your involvement here. You know, you started off, you, you said kind of a almost like a support engineer, right? I mean, yeah. That's kind of what the main company did. How did you scale with GitLab as they grew? Right. Because I think, you know, oftentimes really employees, not everyone makes that transition to really scale up so well. So what did you do to make sure that you were able to stay, you know, sort of on the same trajectory as the company?
0: I mean, I I think I was when I, when I joined GitLab, the deal I had with Sid was it was going to stay for one year and then start my own company. And then I ended up staying for five years. So I made my ambitions clear very early on. And then I just spoke up when I felt like I wanted to change function and I wanted to do something else. And then whenever I felt like I was in over my head or when that time would come, I would make sure that I would find someone to to mentor me or to to help me out with the, with the steps. I think... A lot of what GitLab did and still does, you know, we were fully distributed company. We never had an office. We, you know, we did all these things which were weird, and it meant that we had to have this attitude of constantly learning and iterating. I think I applied that to how I did things as well. In the sense that, rather than thinking, well, you know, I'm going to build a product organization. I'm going to do it as other people have done. I was just very pragmatic about it. And that means that I made a lot of mistakes. Like I think, looking back, there's a lot of things I would have done differently right now. But I was ambitious, and I made sure that we shipped a lot of great stuff. And I think that was my focus, like having really, really great output. And if that's your focus, then you know you're forgiven of making other mistakes that then you can later solve. I, I think that's the main way.
1: <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you know, eventually there was probably a pretty big product org, and there's lots of different execs, and like you know, and you've sort of grown up with the company. Realistically, that's pretty uncommon. So, is it the mentorship? Like, what do you think were the real keys to to being able to do that so successfully?
0: No, I, I don't think it's the mentorship. I I had a few good mentors, but it was not too intensive and not for most of the time. I don't know. I I think you know, a great product leader cares about the product first and foremost, mm. and secondly cares very much about people, and those things are things that. I, I think I generally do well. I, f- I think I have a good eye for product and I'm quite good with people, I think. And I think if you're good with people, that helps you not just managing people that report to you, that doesn't just help you manage like, the executive team, which definitely was a thing. I, I, I think I did relatively well working with the rest of the executive team, but it also really helps you with uh, customers and uh, potential customers. One of the secrets we had at GitLab was we were so fast at building new things and shipping iterations and we were very good at building like a minimally viable product or minimally viable change that I could go into a large you know Fortune five hundred company and they would say ah you know GitHub is great but we just missed this one feature and I'd be like, well you know we'll ship it by next month. And I would quickly on my phone open Slack and send a message to one of the developers and say, can we just make this change? It doesn't seem particularly complex. And I think that kind of attitude it scales quite well because it's about you know getting stuff done and working well with other people so i <laughs> i wouldn't know what else it is uh maybe sid just really likes me but yeah i think that's it
1: and obviously you know you've gone on to found remote and and that's been a pretty quick but very successful you know journey and so you know obviously you, you sort of have proven that you, it's not just a fluke but you're able to do this twice <laughs> see. so so there's, there's definitely some skill there but you know, you just don't see it that often, right? It's it's hard to make that transition. So but I think there's a lot of folks that, you know, and, and maybe it is, you know, the other part is probably cultural and the fact that GitLab was, you know, willing to to continue to allow you to grow and take those steps and not, you know, try to, you know, hire over you constantly and keep you in some position, but give you, you know, a lot of growth opportunities.
0: Yeah. And I was always very blatant about this as well, right? I, I I was never really interested in reporting to someone else, but to the CEO, right? and I, uh, and actually, I never really wanted to have a boss, which is why I ended up funding my own company. But you know, I think the combination of being really ambitious and just I've been generally quite confident and able to speak up when i when it was necessary. I think that that certainly helped me
1: cool. And then the the other thing that you know, obviously GitLab, you know, has I think established a model that many companies like Mattermost and Rocket Chat and, you know, many others have followed in terms of open sourcing like a core piece of functionality or core tool that companies use and then following up with an enterprise edition. Mm-hmm. But the other thing that GitLab did that I think, I mean, there's several things and maybe they're, they're very tied and you can talk to those, obviously fully remote and fully distributed, but also incredibly open and transparent. Yeah. and like every meeting you know is like posted to you know a YouTube unfiltered channel and there's yeah. just like yeah. it's, it's so I mean the the amount of content created and made freely available is mind-boggling so <laughs> can you talk a bit about like sort of those decisions and what led to that and you know and how that maybe worked with being a remote company and sort of you know how those things play off each other
0: yeah I I think it's a thing that strengthened itself. So we started out as an open source project, and so if you're open source, everything is public. And so changing the way that we did business just because we built a company, it felt unnatural. And actually, we started out like that, right? We started out with private issue tracker and such, mm. and we quickly realized that there was really no reason to to do that. Uh, and there were massive advantages to being very public about things. Um, the advantages being that you know we would have our customer and not just like the buyer, but like the people that were actually using GitLab, the developers, the you know, the DevOps people at different organizations, they would be active in our issue tracker, and in particular when it came to enterprise features. And that was really useful because we could literally just talk with them where we were developing things. That gave them immense trust in us. Because you know, we would say, you know, we're gonna do this. And then for the customer, and then we would send them a link to like, this is where we're building it. Oh, this is the merge request. Yeah, we're actually going to ship this next month. Here, here, this is where we're working on it. Or like, it's already merged here. And this would give so much trust in customers. And then, you know, sometimes it would actually contribute to that or sometimes it would just leave comments. But above all, it would just give them immense amount of trust. And what we realized very quickly and uh, was that The reason companies don't do this is this, you know, there's all sorts of reasons, but mainly they're afraid that the competition is going to steal something. But our competition was GitHub, which was, you know, massively funded. It was already giant by the time we barely got started with the company. And we really, on one end, we had nothing to lose, but we also realized that. If they are going to spend time reading what we are doing and what we are working on, then they're already behind. right? Like We're going to be faster than them. The only thing we have as an advantage is to be fast, so we really have nothing to worry about. They can read our issue tracker all day, in the meantime we're just building things and shipping things. And that's basically how it started. And then with building a distributed company that's all remote, one of the largest challenges you face is like how do you deal with information? And so it's well established nowadays that if you have a sh- distributed company, you need to have some sort of you know single source of information, single source of truth of company information and processes. And so we had a handbook for this. And again, you know we could have made this private, but that would do two things. One, it wouldn't allow other people to contribute to it, which we really liked when people did that. Because, you know, just like an open source project, if your company is open like that, then people, volunteers from around the world, people from the community would contribute not just to your product, but to, to your company. So we really liked that. And the other thing is, and this is not to be underestimated, and which is why I think if you're very distributed, it's good to be very open as an organization, even if it's just internally open, is that... Uh, Access to information uh, is a real problem at scale in the sense that it quickly becomes a problem that people are not able to find information because it's locked down. It's in a particular app and maybe they don't have access to that app and then they'll have to ask someone to get access to that app. And those are a lot of steps. And when you build a company where documentation is a part of the culture and where searching through the documentation and self-serving information is important. You can't create too many steps to actually access all of that. And so that helped us a lot to just open up the handbook, which is you know still publicly available. Uh, and besides that, it gave us a really great opportunity to use GitLab to build GitLab because the handbook was just a static repository and so everybody had to contribute to it and to contribute to it you had to use GitLab. So it literally forced every single person in the company, salespeople included, that never wrote a line of code to use GitLab. And of course it was really challenging and so we had to teach everybody Git and later GitLab introduced more and more features to make this easy. But it also had the advantage that they actually knew what they were selling which is quite a technical tool, right? Explaining... What GitLab does to someone that has never thought about how software is written is, is quite difficult. And here we have our salespeople, you know, having a relatively good understanding of what Git is, how it works, how it is part of GitLab, and you know, what the merge request is and why that is important. So there were all these little advantages over time that we discovered as we did this, and that just strengthened our position. And, you know, you have meetings but you want to work as a company asynchronously, so you start recording those meetings. Okay, now they have to be stored somewhere. Well, what if we just put them somewhere on YouTube? So, you know, like, so yeah. those all very pragmatic individual decisions. It was not like a massive decision early on that everything we're going to do is going to be public. And actually, there were all sorts of things that we had to stop being public about. But yeah, all those things come together. Nowadays, it's a very transparent company. There were things you had to stop being public about? Yeah, many things. Many things. Okay. You know, you regularly run into issues with customers that don't want that you talk about them. You don't want them to talk about the things that you do. Yeah. For example, you know, as we got really big and we had a more serious security program, if you say, Well, we have found this massive security hole, you don't want to publish that publicly. So, you know, there is right. actually some code now that is not public and before it is, you know, merged and released, and then it becomes public because it patches some sort of Security hole,
1: CVE, and the, and you need to like you know give notice to your team the the teams and there's like a whole process for for disclosures. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah, and then you know and there's all sorts of little things that you don't really think about until it happens, which is like addresses of servers or you know access to particular things. We were you know I think GitLab continues to try to push the boundaries of this, but the bigger the organization and the more professional it gets, the more you run into little things that you can't do, you know, there's all sorts of people operations, issues that become very hard to manage if everything is public or almost everything is public. So yeah, over time, I think there were many little things here and there that had, we had to stop being public about, but but nonetheless, I think most of the benefit comes from you know, being public about how your companies ran in a more general sense and uh, about building your products.
1: Yeah. And I also, I love some of the, the early you know sentiment about this, which is by building in the open, you create this amount of trust with, with enterprise customers. I think it particularly matters, like it wouldn't really matter for consumers, right? Like to, to be built in the open this way, unless they're like a super, you know, nerdy involved consumer, right? But for an enterprise customer to see that like features aren't just promised, but there's like this issue has been opened and then it's been planned for this sprint or you know here's the code that's starting to address it and you know we're breaking it down like it's almost like the you know it's funny people talk about like waiting on hold you you really want to tell people how long they're going to be on hold for right and yeah. count it down and kind of it's like some amount of progress meter gives them a sense of comfort that they don't get if they're just like please wait you know so the same concept of when an enterprise customer wants a feature And being able to see that progress going along, it satisfies them in a way that makes them much more comfortable with your team and your product.
0: There's this interesting
1: incentive here
0: as well, which is it works both ways. So if we, for example, would set a due date or an expected release for a particular feature, and we would promise this to a customer, a prospective customer, then we would have to make that happen. And sometimes it would happen that we would postpone something for good reason, because you can't always ship everything on time. And we would have a customer sending us a message, hey, I saw this issue, which I've been following, (laughs) and you just postponed it a month. I thought you were going to release it this month. What's up? And that's a really great incentive for you as an organization to... Uh, one, not overpromise because that's really painful because then you're constantly apologizing to everybody, and two, you know, be realistic. And that, and again, this like it reinforces itself where if you can show, okay, the things that we plan to build, we actually built on when we promised them, and that's, you know, and everybody can see that. And there's a history, right? You can go look at any issue on the history of GitLab that they've built, which is like. This is the initial date that we set is like when we expect it to release. And then you can see in which version of GitLab it landed. that just keeps building that trust. And and I, I really enjoyed that. I, I thought that was really, really cool to have conversations with customers where they were like, I want this feature. And we're like, Yes, we're gonna build it. And you can just follow along. You can you can even add code if you want.
1: Yeah. It likely also can serve as like a bumper, right? Like think about, you know, like a Guide you back to where you need to go. If if the customer is paying close attention and they realize that like the thing you're doing is not what they really needed, you know you might be able to catch it before you know it goes into production and into you know beta or whatever else. You can kind of get to it even just in a code review, yeah, in a comment.
0: Yeah, this would happen all the time. And, and the, 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 one of the coolest things is when you engage directly with a customer in your own issue tracker. That was so cool that you could just like, oh, there's this really big customer and just active and you know part of the discussion of us you know deciding how we're going to build a particular new feature that would happen all the time. and it helped a lot that we really built like from a minimally viable change off so that even if they said like this is not going to work for me we would be like, okay we're gonna release this and then we're gonna you know build an iteration to solve for your use case. but in general yeah, it, it would happen all the time. That was the nicest thing you, you would not expect it and of course there were many customers that would not engage on the issue tracker. But even then we would still send them a link. Oh, this feature that you want, yeah, it's planned for this release. And it's not just that I could do that because I let product, it's because our issue tracker is public and everybody could see, you know, feature X comes in release, Y. And so our support team or even our sales team could just literally just go to the issue tracker, look up a feature and see, okay, this is planned for this release. And it would happen. It was really nice.
1: Yeah, and there's another thing, you know, kind of drawing back to the idea of your ability to scale up at GitLab. I think Being kind of built in the open, you're giving access to information to everyone at the company to like engage with all of the info, right? So, oftentimes at companies, execs will silo information and use that information as part of their advantage and like why they are, you know, they they can make a better decision because they have more information. Yeah. Uh, Whereas at a company like GitLab, it's much more. Democratized in the sense that, like anybody can can have access to this, and you know it's not about like who has the biggest title, but it's like, well, I have all the same information that you do, so I can make a reasonable and rational sort of perspective or opinion on this, and it should be considered.
0: Yeah, and and that even goes as far as contributing to it because everybody has the same tools. I, I think that was one of my favorite things when. We started to write guides about how to contribute to GitLab, and they were used both for the open source community as well as for our onboarding. So that, Mm. you know, if you were an open source contributor to GitLab, and you would join the company, the difference was that you got paid, (laughs) and we would ship you a laptop. But like other than that, like everything was the same. You still had to go through the exact same process. That's really nice. That makes it feel like merit is what matters most, rather than exactly as you said, a fancy title. And I think you could see that. I think there was quite a few people that were extremely successful at GitLab because of that. Because yeah, exactly as you said, you have access to everything. It's just, now it's just dependent on you.
1: Yeah. Obviously, a lot of these things are relevant for remote companies, right? And so, talk a little bit about what you're doing now. Talk about remote. Talk about, you know, I mean, I'll I'll say, replicated is a customer of remote. We're, you know, we're using your services to help us kind of start to scale globally. But talk about what you do, and you know, talk about sort of the origins of this as well.
0: Yeah. So, you know, we built a distributed company at GitLab. We had people in sixty-seven different countries, and We face the same challenge every time we would hire someone in a new country, which is, how are we going to provide payroll benefits and stay compliant in this country? And What many people don't realize is that if you hire someone in a country, you as the employer have to comply with local labor laws. And to be able to comply with local labor laws, you have to do things like offer statutory benefits. And to be able to do that, you need to have an entity. That is really hard. Because if you hire 10 people in 10 different countries, which is not a rare thing anymore, then you would have to open 10 different entities beyond the one that you already had. And opening an entities is complex, it takes a lot of time, and you forever have to manage the complexity of that and pay taxes in that country, for example. And so at GitLab, the way we solved this was through different means. We tried you know, opening our own entities, we tried working with different service providers, uh, like Remote is now one, but it obviously didn't exist at the time. But we found this, that it was really hard really complicated, and working with service providers, the experience was generally terrible. They didn't really understand modern startups. They were very expensive. And the whole process, and everything related to it, was very opaque, because it was not just a service provider. They tended to work with third parties at the end. And so what would happen is that you know, a third party would employ one of our employees in Italy, for example. We would only talk with like the larger service provider, and every time we had a question, they would have to go through the chain to you know, the local party. And this caused so many problems. And beyond that, it was just very bureaucratic, very slow, not what you would expect from like a modern tech company. And so I saw that problem and I realized that more organizations were going to work the way GitLab was going to work because of how successful it was. And I thought this is one of the like largest things that would stop a company from actually building a fully distributed you know, global workforce. And so I, I decided to, to address that uh, together with my co-founder, Marcelo. And the goal of remote was very simple early on, was that you should be able to scale your organization by hiring anyone anywhere in the planet. And doing that should be as simple as signing up to Twitter. And so we discovered very early on that the only way to do this properly is to exactly do that, to own everything ourselves. So not rely on third parties, but own our own local entities, make sure that we are compliant. And then again, the incentives are so that we as remote, we are liable and we have to do things well. And that benefits everybody, employee and and employer. And so that's exactly what we do. So remote works as what is known as an employer of record. uh, And that means that we employ people. So if you want to hire Jane in Portugal, remote Portugal employs Jane. We provide payroll, benefits, anything else uh, required to hire her locally. And we invoice the actual employer every single month for... Everything related to employment plus our fee, and that's it. And as an as employer, you don't have to do anything else. You just treat Jane like any other employee as long as you pay our fee. So, <laughs> and our invoices every single month. Uh, and it's the nice thing about this model is that it works in all ways. So, it's fully compliant for everybody involved. Jane gets like a normal pay slip, normal local benefits that she would expect from a local employer. But you, as an employer, you can just treat her like any other employee, offer any kind of benefits you would want. And if there are concerns about, you know, compliance or labor laws, we take care of them. And so um, that's what we built. We started in 2019, uh, January 2019. We opened doors for customers uh, about a year ago, and by now we are, you know, a reasonably large company with about 150 employees ourselves, and growing really fast.
1: Yeah, um, obviously, you know, you had uh, the tailwinds of just the general, you know, world moving to more and more global, more and more remote work. And it probably um, didn't hurt that with a global pandemic, everyone, you know, shifted to remote. And this problem, you know, probably accelerated in the minds of the market by a few years, right? Probably, you know, and I think that's, if you look at the growth of the company, you can see that's reflected in, in the last year, I'm sure it's just been gangbusters in terms of demand and opportunity, so.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's been uh, it <laughs> it's been overwhelming. I didn't think the company would grow as fast as it's doing. I think we set very really ambitious goals and we keep uh, surpassing them. So um, that's certainly also a challenge, but it's also very exciting.
1: And Do you see yourselves as serving sort of primarily, you know, startups and software companies, or is there a, a larger enterprise, you know, organizations that are starting to work with you? Like, what's the sort of target?
0: Yeah, it's very interesting. I, very early on, we had the thesis that almost all knowledge worker companies would need services like we would offer. And that seems to be mostly true in the sense that we have very strong inbound from startups because they tend to hire quickly. They tend to be you know, early adopters of these kind of models, like distributed work. So we have a lot of startups that are growing quickly and that is the majority of our uh, customer base. Uh, and then and they tend to be somewhat larger startups usually. But we also see demand from large enterprises, and we also see demand from just regular companies, companies that you know, produce chocolates and, and do, <laughs> that are not necessarily in tech. Uh, and that definitely has been very interesting. And we know that this kind of model, this kind of service has existed for decades, Actually, mostly it would serve large enterprises because they would have expats that would live in a particular country, and they wouldn't want to have like a local subsidiary just for you know the two or five employees that they would have there. And so they would use these kind of services. So yeah, the demand comes from almost any kind of organization, and that has been very exciting to see as well.
1: And for the larger companies, it feels like you know, particularly based on your pricing page there's probably a lot of enterprise functionality around like producing the reports and the compliance sort of like hey here's here's how to prove what's happening that this is you know the way that we say it is is that is that right
0: yeah that's basically it i think it's been less intense than i expected <laughs> you know looking back at gitlab where the demands from the enterprise customers were very intense in terms of like features that they required i think it remote you know, I don't think we serve too many large enterprises yet, so it might still come or like many regulated ones. But it's exactly that: it's things like reporting and, and integrations that you would expect. They have large systems where they roll up, you know, thousands of employees, and they want to integrate it with that. Mm. Nothing, nothing too crazy. You know, having worked in enterprise software for a long time, I, <laughs> it's going to be hard to be surprised by what they are asking. But yeah,
1: but yeah, that also make would, would make sense is the integration side, right? So making sure that you are. You know, integrating with their existing—you know, I don't know—HR admin tools. Like, what, what are the what are the top integrations that you're doing today?
0: It's very interesting because it's all over the place. I think the larger the organization, the more it's around finance and like integrating with NetSuite and SAP and those kind of tools. Mm. We see. Requests for all sorts of tools, the ones that you know, like the big HR platforms in uh, in the space, but I think at larger enterprises, so much is done by custom tools or things that have lived for a very long time. We don't even have that many requests for very specific large enterprise HR tools yet, but it's mostly like those finance systems and such that they, they care about. And then once in a while, a request for a system of which we've never heard of, of a company we've never heard of, and then it turns out that's apparently used by a very large part of the Fortune five hundred. Uh, that definitely has been interesting as well.
1: Yeah, the uh, proliferation of like various software products throughout these organizations. You're like, I'm always surprised. I'm like, there's oh, that's another. You know. $50 million a year software company that I had never heard of.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's it's incredible. And it's super expensive software that looks terrible and tends to work terrible and has no API. And
1: <laughs> yeah, we see that a lot. Yeah, those are fun to integrate with. And so when you think about the future of, of remote, particularly for for enterprise software companies, like what do you think everyone's going to be doing in a few years? Like, how do you see, or in, in the other question is always like, what do you think is going to be the same that it is today? Like what's not going to change? In what sense? I mean like just like, you know, remote work, right? So are we going to continue to use, you know, all these different collaboration tools? Like is there any, you know, any anything to solve for time zone challenges? Oh yeah. What, what are we going to see emerging?
0: I think one thing that is really lacking on an enterprise level, but I am starting to see that Slack is starting to address it here and there already, is tools that cover more than a need of just having meetings and basic communication. So I think what is well established is that as a distributed company, a company with people in many different time zones, you need to work asynchronously to a degree, meaning like having great documentation tools. I think there's no great enterprise level documentation tool. There's Confluence, which is not great. And then there's tools like Notion and Coda and Slide, which are good, but not great for enterprises because they don't support that kind of skill yet so there's clear lack there and then there's a, a clear lack of you know out of the context of work communication things that give you a sense of presence uh, things that allow you to have water cooler chats without them being too forced without them needing to appear on the calendar there are quite a few tools that do that but I think almost none of them and then that's why I mentioned early on that I think slack is working on this but right now none of them are, good enough for enterprises and none of them are good enough for scale and i think that's a clear clear miss and then there's a last category here which is actual bonding over you know playing games together or or having you know more casual fun together which you know enterprises tend to do by just you know having a budget for lunch for example or once in a while have an offsite and i think offsites will will still happen but Actually, playing games together and things that force you to get to know your colleagues in some way or another, there's a market for that as well. And again, I think almost none of these tools are actively going after the enterprise. I think in part because it's a hard sell, but also because, as you know, you know, if you want to sell to the enterprise, you need to have SSO, you need to have be GDPR compliant, and you know, you need to have your SOC tool uh, ready. So, uh, and th- those are difficult things when you're talking about communication tools.
1: Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I think the the sort of getting to know the people you work with aspect is really important. One of the things that you know, so we hired our chief product officer. He was at GitLab. He worked with with Mark Punsack, and yeah. when he joined Replicated, one of the things you know that he brought to us was some of the best practices around remote teams. And I think the one that's probably the most impactful is just like you know, we do a weekly all hands, and during that time, we just go around the horn, you know, and let everyone talk about what's going on in their life for two seconds or two minutes and show photos and just like talk about their weekend and what they're watching and what they're doing. And, you know, we've been doing that now for you know probably seven or eight months. And it it really does make a difference in terms of how people feel connected and how you kind of know each other a bit more. Um, It's those candid conversations and it's, you know, beyond work that I think build trust and create, it goes beyond coworkers to where these people become important people in your life.
0: Yeah, uh, this is incredibly important. And I think as an employer, you have to actively work on introducing these kind of, you know, cultural habits within the organization, actively work on bringing in tools that help make this easier. Because if you don't, you're going to end up with people that, you know, feel isolated or feel alone or not comfortable, you know, asking favors from a colleague, for example, which are very normal, basic things, but you need to build some sort of rapport with your colleagues, and you're not going to build rapport in just working together, right? Like if all your interactions are with someone else, if all those interactions are around, you know, the context of work, you know, we're working on this project, and this is what I need from you. Okay, now you can do this. You don't really build rapport with someone like that. And it would also lead to you know higher churn, you know people leaving companies because you know what ties you to the company if it's not the relationships, it's just just, <laughs> just your salary at one point.
1: And, I mean, do you see yourselves building anything in this space, or is it like is is remote really about the workforce, you know, management and and, and access to to having those employees, or do you, do you see yourselves kind of getting into this at some point?
0: You know, in a far future, yes, but I, I definitely not nothing on the short term. I, there are many exciting companies that work on, on these kind of solutions, all sorts, you know, basic voice chat, different kind of video tools, but even just like video games. Video games are a really great way for teams to bond and it doesn't have to be something overwhelming or uh, aggressive. It can be something simple as Pictionary, which is a huge hit uh, hmm. at remote. Or for example, Among Us, which, you know, is almost universal appeal. Those are great games and they actually serve this purpose really really well Hmm. and um, yeah I don't think it's up to us I think our (laughs) speciality is like large-scale complicated compliance and operations yeah but I yeah I I think this can be a massive market and um, I'm very excited to see what companies come up with
1: and you do host a a podcast around sort of remote work as well right
0: yeah 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 we so we do uh, remote talks which is uh, I just talk with people that run remote organizations and talk a little bit about how they run their uh, organization or what is special about what they do. And uh, the interesting thing that I found there is that it's so different. Mm. You know, if you think about office culture, office culture you can categorize it very roughly. You have like the, you know, large consultancy banking kind of stuff, which is suits and ties. And then you have On the other end of the spectrum, you have the Googles of the world, which are very, very rare, right? There's only a few of them, which really relax workplaces. And then most organizations are somewhere in the middle, which is like, you know, you can dress somewhat casual, you know exactly what to expect in an office, you have lunch together, and uh, you know, you go in office, you have lunch together, and you leave the office, and that's about it. And like, there's not very much special about it. When you look at remote and distributed companies, because there's not, you know, other than what GitLab basically wrote, there's not really a playbook, and so companies have to reinvent themselves or like define themselves by what they do. And what I see is that all these companies operate completely differently. Um, the way they run meetings, the way they do bonding within the organization, there's not really an established great model yet. There's just a whole bunch of companies trying different things uh, and with different levels of success. And that, that's been very interesting to see. I think one company stands out to me, the company that builds a 1Password. I've, I interviewed... One of their uh, founders a few years ago, and he told me that they basically don't use video chat. I don't know if it has changed in the meantime, but I always think about that—that that, you know—that whole company is ran without video chat. Mm. And I always think that is very interesting. I think it's nice to look at people, but maybe that is not necessary to run a company.
1: Yeah, that's actually really interesting. I mean, I guess it's because it's still so early, and you know, a lot of the best practices really haven't been defined and established, and. And then maybe the other thing is it just, it is a format that allows for more sort of variation, right? Because it's not constrained to physical location because it doesn't have a lot of the same constraints. It sort of, you know, can evolve differently. It sort of gives you some amount of additional hope that like, you know, as companies go remote, there's like a bunch of right ways to do it. Right. Obviously there's, there's things that you'll learn that don't work well, but you know, maybe there's a lot of different ways to do it. Well,
0: yeah, I, I think so. It's, is incredibly interesting, and especially if you start to scale, and it to be very interesting to talk with large distributed companies. Then there are so few examples, but there are so many challenges that you have to be really, really creative. Like there's only a few, you know, Git labs in the world, uh, although that's accelerating incredibly fast. As you see, some very large enterprises saying, "Well, you you can work from home forever." Yeah, that's very cool. It's very cool to see.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be, you know, even just in the U.S., I, I think it's, it's been really good for sort of the country primarily because if, if you get a lot of people to leave these, like, you know, major city centers and go into rural parts of the country and start to like, Hey, you know, the like coasts versus middle America, maybe this isn't, this rivalry is not so bad. And these are real people on the other side. Like maybe we can, you know, bridge some of that divide. And then also bring you know the the next generation of of like careers and jobs and wealth you know outside of just like silicon valley and new york and la it's like yeah. bring it into all these different places and i think it's really important for people to see what the kind of success looks like and so to have a neighbor that's you know running a startup in you know the middle of america like just didn't happen as much before, and maybe maybe it will now. And so that sort of visibility to you know somebody growing up in you know Iowa or in Texas or wherever else could really be uh, influential in, in the future. And then to the remote side, now let's take that to the world, right? And let's yeah. let's get access to the world's talent. Um, you know, if you believe that like talent and sort of intelligence are fairly normally distributed around the world like we are missing on a lot of really amazing people who could be contributing to the world in big ways because they don't have the same access that you know we do in sort of the you know every developed country so
0: yeah exactly i think that's exactly how we you know started out remote thinking we want to bring more opportunities to people around the world and then we cri- quickly realized that's not sufficient because it has to be wealth because you can hire someone for very little money in another place in the world and i don't think we're addressing the problem that way and so that's the way our mission has changed. We want to bring more wealth to people around the world, independent of where they live. And I think we can. I live in the middle of nowhere in Portugal. Like, There's nothing nearby my house. There's no tech companies or anything here. Uh, there's nothing really. There's not even a supermarket that's close to my house. So, And my co-founder lives 400 kilometers away from me. Uh, so I, I think it's possible.
1: No, that's great. I love it. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I've really enjoyed the conversation. It's just been cool to kind of learn about all of your different experiences and sort of where where you see the world going. So thank you for joining. Thanks for having me. That's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just to learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit heavybit.com to check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. This podcast is also brought to you by my company, Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors like HashiCorp, CircleCI, Sneak, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem applications to their largest enterprise customers. Check us out at replicated.com.